What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Eamon Javers in for Kelly Evans today. And here's what's ahead. It was the slowest month for job creation since December of 2020. And we all remember what was going on in December of 2020. But that may still not be slow enough for the Fed to stop raising rates. We'll tell you why and the key data point the Fed will be watching next ahead of the rate decision that's coming later on this month. Plus, our market guest says stocks bottomed last October. So keep buying the dips and keep buying tech but only a certain kind of tech. She joins us with what makes her so bullish and the names she's buying in the sector. And Black Knight out with a new report on the housing market. We're getting an exclusive preview today. And if you were thinking about buying a home anytime soon, you're gonna wanna stick around for it. But we begin today with today's markets and Dom Chu was at his position early today I with was. the numbers. Hey there, Dom. I was, you saw me standing right there scrutinizing everything that Ready Rick Santelli was talking about. But, but anyway, we thought with the jobs number out there this morning that we might see a little bit of volatility and that's what we've seen it hasn't been massive but it's still been enough to push stocks now towards session highs on that what some are characterizing as a more goldilocks number at least when it comes to fed and interest rates the dow industrial is up about 90 points one quarter of one percent higher north of a half percent gain for the s p 500 which currently sits at 4437 up 25 points this does represent right now the session high for stocks so call it up 25 at the highs of the session down roughly 13 points at the lows. That's been the range so far today. About three quarters of 1% gain for the Nasdaq Composite, which currently sits at 13,790. Interest rates, a big part of that story and a big macro day when it comes to jobs, arguably the most important economic indicator out there. We are seeing a move at least somewhat kind of interesting, converging in certain parts of the market. The 10-year benchmark note yield is drifting slightly higher, 4.05%. Meanwhile, a little bit lower to 4.93% for the two-year note yield. And that difference between the two of them, the inversion so far here, currently sits at just around minus or negative 0.88% or 88 basis points. Remember, in the last few days, we saw a low of north of 1% to the downside, minus 110 basis points at one point. So watch that Treasury spread, that yield curve dynamic play out right now. That's going to be key for stocks going forward. And then the stock of the day right now. Not in the S&P 500, but it's in a red-hot space, and that's electric vehicles. It's not Tesla, it's Rivian. Up 18% today, building on an eight-day winning streak, working on that right now. During that span, we've seen the stock here in the last eight days go up by roughly 80-plus percent, adding roughly $11 billion to its market value on some more bullishness with regard to its EV deliveries, trucks and vans in Europe. And, Eamon, I'll leave you with this. Wedbush is out upping their target to 30 bucks a share from 25. They think there's an inflection point for this stock. That's one of the proximate causes for today, but still a lot of momentum. We'll see if it can stay that way. A lot of times you don't see stocks sustain that kind of momentum to the upside for this long. I'll send things back over to you.
Dom, so fascinating with the overall market today. That Goldilocks jobs number, but not every investor is seeing it as their cup of porridge today. So let's dig a little deeper into that weaker than expected jobs number. Steve Leisman is here to break down the report along with the headlines from his exclusive interview with the Chicago Fed president. Steve, I saw you this morning in the Octo Box on Squawk Box, but now we have you all to ourselves. What's your takeaway now that the dust has settled a little bit? Um, I think it's a pretty good report, and I think it's okay. But I want to start with what Austin Goolsby said, yeah. because you guys were saying Goldilocks. I want to replace that term with golden path. Here's, okay. Uh, Goolsby making the first Fed comments after the jobs report in exclusive CBC interview. And unlike some of his colleagues, the Chicago Fed president didn't sound disappointed with where the economy and the inflation numbers are now. He sounded pretty content. The Fed's overriding goal right now is to get inflation down we are going to succeed at it, and to do that without a recession would be a triumph. And that's the golden path, and I feel like we're on that golden path. On rates, he said he was undecided about what the Fed should do in July, unlike other Fed members who have strongly supported a hike. But he said one or two hikes would not take the economy off of that golden path if they were needed. So kind of aligning himself in that regard with his colleagues. On jobs, he said he was pleased that payroll growth was slowing and that higher wages, he said, even though that was in the report, were lagging and not leading inflation. Here's the numbers. Non-farm payrolls up 209 versus the 240 estimates, so a little bit light and way lighter than that ADP number. April and May revised down 110 unemployment rate unchanged at a still low 3.6. Uh, participation rate remains at a high uh, level, 62.6%. And there's the average hourly earnings a tenth higher than expected. And so that un- that year-over-year rate unchanged. One way to make more sense of the data is to look at the three-month average of job gains, gets rid of some of the uh, ups and downs. It declined from lofty levels above 300,000 beginning of the year. Now it's 244, so not in a bad place. Goosby's colleagues, the Fed, They've been less satisfied with the economy, with some complaining that it looks to have been more resilient than they would have hoped for after 500 basis points of hikes. And they think the Fed ought to hike again and should have hiked already. Markets now gear up for the inflation report next week. That's going to be a hot one. But, Steve, I want to ask you about this this morning because you got the Goldilocks number, the golden path, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to pick today. Uh, and yet markets don't seem to be really embracing that. And a lot of people are saying that's because of the wage picture that was in the jobs report today. I think that's do you, right. Do you have an explanation for or just an insight into why we can see jobs softening but wages still pretty good? Um, a couple of things. First of all, if you guys could put up the 10-year, I want to make one note about what Dom was saying, which is that, Uh, The 10-year yield is lower than it was after the jobs number, up a little bit, but it still embraced that spike that it had. If you go back two days, did you do that? Not quite. Go a little tighter on that that chart, guys, if you don't mind. Oh, you're so good. How good are they in the back there? It's a great control room. So you see that pop we had from the ADP number, that that, um, it looks like, what do you call it, El Capitan or whatever you call that at Yosemite? (laughs) Okay, that, that sheer cliff right there. Um, my son wants to climb that. I really don't want him to. But anyway, that most of that has remained there. So I think you still have some residual wage pressure inside where people are trying to get people to come back into the workforce. We need bodies in this country, Eamon. And, yeah. and you ought to go back to Washington and, and do some more reporting on that immigration story because we don't have the people in this country, at least not on a legal basis, to fill the jobs for the growth that we have. Morgan Stanley did a piece this week and said that compared to the level of GDP using something they call Oaken's Law, which relates GDP to unemployment and to employment, we're 300,000 jobs short of where we should be for the level of GDP we have right now. Because we just don't have the people. We don't have the people, and businesses are doing more with less, which tells me 
another part of this story that we're going to have to watch and report is there may be more productivity in this economy than we've given the credit for. And that might explain the wage picture. Exactly. This morning. Steve, I mean, look, you bring people to work. You have work to do. You bring them to work if those people are providing profit to your business. Steve, stick around. My next guest almost nailed the jobs number. She was expecting around 200,000 jobs in today's report. And while today's number came in below the 240,000 estimate, she says a July rate hike is all but a done deal. So here to explain that is Diane Swank. She's the chief economist at KPMG. Diane, you were off by 9,000, pretty close. What made you think we were going to come in light today? Well, we've seen a bit of a slowdown out there. The ADP report is not a good forecaster of what's going on in the national economy. And I do think it's important to look at what's going on in some of what had been the drivers of gains. One of the biggest drivers of gains had been professional services, which has slowed down quite markedly this year. That had over a million and a half more than February 2020 levels, now significantly higher than that. That is one of those sectors that saw a huge hiring spree and has now cooled off. So we're seeing some of those larger firms, which was really in the ADP report, was smaller firms are picking up the slack, where larger firms are now laying off workers. We saw that in the ADP report, and I think that's what you're seeing come out in the numbers as well. But the important issue is job openings are still far outstripping the number of workers we have. And I agree wholeheartedly with Steve is that we're still short on workers. And that's one of the reasons why wages have not cooled even more. Diane, when I got a 97 on an exam, my dad asked me why I I missed by three. So I'm not going to ask you you why you were off by nine, okay? (laughs) But but just to to be clear, I do want to ask you this question. It's luck, Steve, and you know it. Yeah, I I think it's some good forecasting by you, Ms. Swank. You've been doing this for for quite a while. But here's the thing. Um, I went back and did a little deep dive on the ADP versus the BLS. One big area where they miss, and I noticed this immediately at 8.30 when I was in the Octobox, was, and it doesn't inhibit my ability to think, being in that octobox. <laughs> but here's the thing, was the travel and leisure, leisure and hospitality. Yep. ADP Huge. put in 200,000 plus, the government at 21. Do you believe that? Which one do you believe more? I believe it's somewhere in between okay. um, because we know this is a month that the seasonals are, we're supposed to be hiring up. Okay. And we know that I happen to be at O'Hare on July 1st at 5.45 a.m. And I can tell you brutal. at O'Hare Airport at, on July 1st at 5.40, yeah, it was brutal. It was absolutely as packed as I've ever seen it. And sure enough, the TSA throughput numbers show record numbers since July 1st. So we do know that hiring up in the leisure and hospitality sector was going on. And my guess is we might see some upward revisions to this those numbers. Um, The fact that the gains were not in food services, that's been a place that's been very, very strong. Instead, they were in amusement, recreation, other parts of leisure and hospitality, not usually, and accommodations. But I think we're going to see more of that going forward, and we could see some catch up in those numbers. It's the big splurge fun stuff that people want to do, right? I mean, is this still a post-pandemic You're a road warrior, right? If you tell me that the airline business and the hospitality doesn't need hundreds of thousands of workers in this country, then I have a plane to sell you or something like oh, that. I mean, the right? flights are packed. The flights, the flights are, are packed. <laughs> Everything, there's a line everywhere. So it just the, strikes the bars me. bars are suspiciously packed in the airports at 8 a.m. or 5.45 a.m. I've always wondered about that. It might not be a trend in the jobs report, <laughs> but it's something I noticed. When I'm Let's here. ask Diane about the Fed, though. So what's the Fed do with this? You heard Goolsby, who says we're on the golden path. Are we on the golden path, Diane? 
Well, you know, I'm closer to it than I was, Steve. I really thought we were going to get a recession out of this. And we, I can only hope that he's right. And I'm rooting for him to be right. I think we're still going to see another two rate hikes this year. And the Fed holding rates high until May of 2024. Uh, that is when I think they're going to be cutting rates, but not going to be cutting them back to the lows that we had seen pre-pandemic. And I think that's really important theme that we have going on out there as well, is that service sector inflation is still with us. It's cooling. The good news is it's coming down. It's not coming down as rapidly around the world as we'd like. And we've seen many central banks have to go back in and restart rate hikes even after they pause. Canada, um, a lot of other countries, many Nordic countries having to go back in again. And I think that is very important that the Fed is looking at this. They don't want to get too far ahead of themselves. They don't want to make the mistake that other banks have made, nor repeat the mistake of the transitory sort of inflationary view they had in 2021. Diane, I wonder, you know, I'm far from an expert as you guys are, but it feel, felt to me like uh, a rate hike in the end of July was sort of baked in. Once we saw Steve bring us the Fed minutes earlier in the week, we knew that the Fed was thinking rate hike more likely than not, right? So I wonder today if we saw anything in this jobs report that would change the Fed's thinking beyond what they were already thinking in, in terms of what we saw in those minutes. I don't think anything changes today. I think one of yeah. the interesting issues is Although, you know, I give a lot of help, a lot of credit to Austin Goolsbee and what he's brought to the Fed and his views and have to agree with him to some extent. That said, I do think that the acceleration that we've seen two months in a row in leisure and hospitality wages and a reacceleration in manufacturing wages are things we need to watch for. We're also seeing a lot of contract negotiations go on out there. And what they're worried about is that we get CPI baked into those contracts. That is starting to happen in Europe. And you just don't want to have that indexation to be baked in because it can give you um, a residual inflation effect. It, it still is that wages yeah, follow gonna, inflation. I was going to say, exactly. Diane, there's two anecdotal things that are out there. One is that you don't have big wage gains in industries that don't have strong employment. Yeah. So the leisure and hospitality wages that Diane was talking about. The other thing is, to underscore what you were saying, you don't have unions striking when they're afraid for their jobs. Yeah. So the, 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 the confidence right. with which the unions are negotiating these days tells me the job market, the labor market remains tight. Feels like the balance of power is still with the employees rather than the employees. I think it still is right, right now. Yeah. And um, I'm just hoping that the next time we come back here, Diane um, uh, tightens up her forecast. <laughs> and gets, gets it just gets a little more nine. accurate. I mean, and, 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 and loses that error rate. Gets even closer than 9,000. Yeah, yeah. Tighten yeah. it up, Diane. We can all do better. Diane Swank, Steve Leisman, thank I'll you so much. I'll do my best on that. Really appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Despite concerns about higher rates for longer, my next guest says the Fed is close to being done, and she's buying on the dips, especially tech stocks. So joining me now is Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. Uh, so give me the explanation here. What, what is it that you see that makes you a buyer today? Oh, thanks for having me, Eamon. Uh, well, we were adding to our our tech holdings in, in the fall of last year. And part of it was valuation. We already were overweight, the group, and we're, we are still overweight technology. But much of it was that the companies were turning in solid earnings last year, some, some in the 20% range. They would, they would pop on the earnings announcement and then sell off in subsequent days because it, investors were valuing the stocks based on interest rates. So the Fed now is closer to being done. 
We know the economy is slowing, and we always want to own companies that have solid, uh, sustainable earnings power in a slowing growth environment. And and many of the names that we've, we we own uh, have that. And then in addition, we now have the AI uh, tailwind, and, and, and it's a secular tailwind, I believe, along with cloud not even being close to half done with the total addressable market of $3 trillion. And Nancy, I teased this at the very top of the show. You like tech, but you like only a certain type of tech. As I'm looking at the names here that you picked, you, you kind of like big establishment tech, right? Explain why. Yeah, and uh, because the management teams have demonstrated uh, that they can continue to take share and, and they know what they're doing. Yeah, a pretty a pretty treacherous environment. We also like the ones that are paying a dividend and growing the dividend. So on that list was Broadcom and Oracle, Microsoft, all pay a dividend, and they are growing the dividend. Great offset against inflation. Can you pick one of those against the others, or are they all in a basket you would equally weight them all? No, uh, we are overweight. We have a 12 best ideas portfolio. And in that, probably Microsoft is the, the highest weight just on sheer appreciation. You you have to also pay attention to what you're paying for a future unit of growth. And the peg ratio on, um, on Microsoft is 2.3 times. Palo Alto Networks two times. So this is not the internet bubble valuations that people were sort of you know stating last year. This is not that. These are companies that have solid earnings power growing and they're in the right spaces because you, you just had that segment on labor force uh, limitations. The participation rate overall is not going to go up. You're not going to bring the baby boomers back. So we need productivity. You can't get higher than 100 percent. Yeah. There's a ceiling on and, this. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess my question is one of the takeaways, my read of the jobs report anyway, is that uh, we're continuing that rebalancing post-pandemic uh, from the idea of everyone buying stuff and being in their houses to everybody buying services and getting out of their houses. That shift seems to be going, you know, incredibly fast and continuing. And, we, and who knows how long it'll continue to last. But I wonder, as you look at that, are there particular stocks that you would look at that could still benefit? Is there still some running room to that trade? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we, we were also adding to consumer discretionary um, last year. It seems counterintuitive, but we think uh, a number of those names still have a ways to go. So a name like Lululemon or uh, Spotify is not a consumer discretionary, but it is um, purchased by consumers. Uh, we just added to Uber. Uh, we think that is going to continue to provide solid management and outperformance because people are, you know, returning to travel and that you need to get around when you get where you're going. Yeah. So we like we like those kinds of names that are have demonstrated the ability to grow last year and in and, and in this slowing environment, economic environment. So you're sticking with that theme of the big companies where management knows what it's doing. Uh, Nancy Tangler, thank you so much with Laffer Tangler Investments. Appreciate your insights today. And coming up, an under the radar real estate name that one Wall Street firm's calling the best defensive and offensive play in the sector. How's that possible? We'll speak with the CEO next with a stock down 8% this year. Plus, lots of geopolitical headlines and potential headwinds for the market. We'll wrap up Treasury Secretary Yellen's second day in Beijing and look ahead to next week's high-stakes NATO summit, the exchange, coming back right after this. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. 
Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And welcome back to The Exchange. The commercial real estate sector has felt the impact of rising rates and tightening credit, with office space seeing the biggest pain. Names like Kilroy, Vernado, and Boston Properties all down over 30% in the past year. But not all REITs are created equal, and there is one name, Mizuho, recently called the best defensive and offensive play in the sector due to a well-positioned balance sheet and formidable liquidity, as they say. The name is Agri Realty. The company develops and leases properties to some of the biggest retailers in the country. And joining me now on set is CEO Joey Agri. Joey, thank you for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, just looking at uh, your company, you own and operate a portfolio of 1,900 properties located in all 48 continental states and containing approximately 40.1 million square feet of gross leasable space. And and a lot of people would say post-pandemic, you guys are positioned in an an awkward space in some some cases if you're dealing with the office market. How do you see that shaking out in the years to come? Well, well, first of all, our, our retailers today are the largest retailers in the world. Like you mentioned, Walmart is our top tenant, Kroger, Best Buy, Dollar General, Tracks by Lowe's, Home Depot, AutoZone, O'Reilly. So they're the biggest and strongest retailers in the world today that, frankly, are, are benefiting generally from the trade-down effect we're seeing with the consumer today. So we think we're really well-positioned, almost 100% occupied today. We collected all of our rent during COVID, and most of those retailers, frankly, thrive and survive. Why did they thrive? I mean, the whole story during the pandemic was, you know, everyone's going to order from Amazon and stay at home. And that's going to be at least a big percentage of the buying public out there. But you're saying, you know, traditional drive up, park and go in the store retailers were also thriving. Well, they were thriving because they had, frankly, they made the investments historically to fulfill orders online, whether during the depths of the pandemic or in the in the store. And so Best Buy had effectively all their stores closed during the pandemic, but still was able to fulfill 90 percent of orders. And so today, what you see with retailers are the retailers that have invested in their omni-channel distribution strategies, in labor, in price, able to fulfill no matter whether we're in a pandemic or we're, we're, we're in a traditional economy like we are. So how should we think about real estate when we think about uh, sort of commercial office uh, real estate and retail, your sweet spot? Yeah. I mean, there seems to be a huge delta there, right? There's a huge delta there, which I think is underappreciated generally by the market. We see tons of headlines out there, the commercial office, the commercial space, commercial real estate, the, the headwinds, all of these challenges. You feel that drags on your guys, even though they're performing? 100%. Investors today, general, generalist investors, individual investors are scared of the headlines. I mean, it's very reminiscent. It reminds me of five years ago, turn back the clock when I believe it was the journal three weeks in a row said Amazon's going to kill grocery. Amazon's going to kill pharmacy. Amazon's going to kill auto parts. 
And so you get the headline risk there, which really doesn't drive to the core essence of our business, which are extremely healthy retailers, which are providing essential goods and services to Americans every day. We were just talking in the previous segment about this post-pandemic rebalancing that we're seeing between people buying stuff during the pandemic and people buying services and experiences and a lot of the fun stuff now. How does that affect your guys? It really doesn't. I'll tell you, look, you throw $5 trillion in stimulus into the economy. You have zero interest rates, zero interest rates for a while. And you're going to have oddities. You're going to have surge sales. You're going to have, obviously, the, the retailers that were selling outdoor goods and services. The canoes, the kayaks, the gun sales went through the roof. Everyone got a pet and a bike yep. during the pandemic. Um, but today I already had a pet, but we got a bike. You can, you can get yeah. another one. Right? Right. So we're seeing the normalization of those trends now. Now it's slow, right? There's pent-up demand for travel and experiences. But again, our focus is always on non-discretionary, what we call omni-channel critical retailers, providing those goods and services that aren't luxury. They're not, they're not want-to-haves. They're generally must-haves for consumers. So what's the opportunity for you next? Where do you expand? Across the country. I mean, we are actively. I mean, are there acquiring. types of markets that you're looking at? Is it you know, mid-sized cities versus big, big cities? I mean, primary markets to tertiary markets. Our tenants like Walmart and Dollar General, based all over the country today. We increased our acquisition guidance to over 1.2 billion dollars for the year. Our balance sheet is locked and loaded. Last year, we acquired over 400 individual properties across the country. I would anticipate a similar number of acquisitions, averaging between four and five million dollars per transaction. So all this talk that we have about you know, the Fed and a soft landing and where things are going, does that affect you at all? Look, it affects us generally with the yeah. interest rate environment and valuations. But what we're seeing today with a balance sheet like ours, we're an investment-grade rated company, again, with over a billion dollars of liquidity at any given time, we're seeing opportunities. And so you, you, you throw the economy, the rising interest rates, the regional banking challenges that are out there, the 1031 transactions dropping by 50% today. And we're the buyer of choice. And so we're seeing a tremendous amount of opportunities, both from individuals as well as institutional sellers, to take advantage of it. You know, you roll back the clock to 2021, 2022, at least the first two-thirds, it was free money and money for all. And so today, certainty and execution matters again. Yeah. Joey Agri, Agri Realty, thanks so much for being here. Really thanks appreciate it. Appreciate Great to see it. You. And coming up, Tesla's had a busy week between uh, deliveries, a price war truce, and now uh, new numbers showing its dominance in the EV market. Phil LeBeau is going to be here. He'll join us to break it all down. The exchange is back right after this. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Eight four four Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. And welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now near session highs after staging a midday reversal. The Dow erasing a 152-point loss. The S&P up 28 points, or six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq is the outperformer today, up nine-tenths of a percent. Meta shares, meanwhile, on track to end the week higher. As CEO Mark Zuckerberg says, threads surpassed 70 million signups in just one day after launching, adding that was, quote, 
way beyond our expectations. I was one of those signups. Uh, remember now, uh, Twitter reported 238 million daily active users in its last earnings report as a public company last summer. Insider intelligence estimates that estimates that Meta only needs 25% of Instagram users to use threads monthly for it to be as big as Twitter. Meta, meantime, is riding its longest monthly winning streak ever up 140% since January, putting it on pace for its best year since going public. I saw a lot of commentary today, people saying how ironic they put all that money into the metaverse, and in reality, a Twitter clone might be their big success of the year. Now, coming up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's halfway through her trip to China, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows. There were some rainbows, but not all sunshine and rainbows. We'll tell you what she's criticizing and look ahead to next week's high-stakes NATO summit. Back in a minute. Welcome back to The Exchange. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen continuing her trip in China today with a message that the goal is not to decouple, but rather diversify the world's two largest economies. She did, she did call out punitive actions taken by China against U.S. firms in recent months and stressed the importance of multilateral action. Our economic relationship with China must work for American businesses and American workers. I will always champion your interests and work to make sure there is a level playing field. This includes coordinating with our allies to respond to China's unfair economic practices. So let's look at what's next for U.S.-China relations with Roman Schweitzer, aerospace and defense analyst at Cowan, and Michael O'Hanlon, Brookings Institution's senior fellow and director of research in foreign policy. Uh, guys, both of you, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Roman, let's start with you because we saw this uh, moment from Janet Yellen earlier today, or at least it appeared on our screens this side of the ocean earlier today, uh, in which she sort of criticized the Chinese for putting pressure on American companies operating in China. Now, this is a, a a relationship that needs a lot of work. This is a, a high-stress diplomatic mission. Uh, was that the right call to come out of the gate with a note of criticism there, or is that something that just had to be said today? Well, thanks for uh, having me, Amos. It's, it's uh, nice to be with you. And uh, look, it, it's frank discussion. And, and I think uh, both the Chinese government and U.S. government realize that uh, this is not necessarily going to be a cordial or delicate relationship. Uh, both sides are, are clearly uh, preparing for a, a long-term strategic competition. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really subscribe to the notion of relations getting better or worse. Uh, they're sort of in a, in a competitive framework, uh, maybe not analogous to the Cold War, but uh, both countries are acting in their own interests and going to try to shape uh, the geopolitical environment and, and uh, economies around the world to, to their camp. So, I mean, this is going to continue. She has been viewed as, as sort of perhaps one of the more dovish members uh, in the administration. Uh, certainly there are hawks on China, and it's going to be a continuing dialogue back and forth, uh, certainly from Washington policymakers. Michael, so much of this is stagecraft and statecraft, right? And we see the Chinese side and Chinese media making a lot uh, over the past 24 hours or so of the fact that there was a rainbow over Janet Yellen's airplane when she disembarked in China. That seems to be a good sign. And I saw a senior Treasury official today taking full credit, saying it was Treasury advanced staffers that arranged for that rainbow to be there. Uh, so that gives you a sense that it's at least off to a good start. But is there more here to get for the U.S. than just these kind of, you know, warm and fuzzy moments? Greetings. Well, yeah, I think the, the rainbow thing can be pushed a little far. And even though it's <laughs> lighthearted light and humorous, it may almost be a slight mistake to 
frame things in that way with this treasury official sort of, I mean, it was obviously a joke that we had arranged for it to be there, but the notion that this is somehow supposed to be a happy trip that just repairs a, a nice friendship that otherwise has gone through some you know, ups and downs, but can be repaired easily. That's obviously very misleading, as my colleague just said. And I, I think Secretary Yellen coming out and reiterating the criticism of Chinese uh, behavior towards American companies, your first question to us, I think in a way that was designed to set the tone of a workmanlike but tough conversation. Because what Yellen's essentially doing by that statement is reminding China of how often it breaks the rules yeah. and not letting China turn this into a conversation about how we're breaking the rules by slapping tariffs unilaterally and denying them high technology goods or machinery. So Yellen's reminding China of why we have reached this juncture in the relationship. And it's not meant to be a rainbow talk in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I, I don't want to make too much of the, the sort of superficial piece of this. But our Eunice Yoon, who, our reporter in Beijing this morning, was saying there's a lot of commentary on Chinese social media uh, that Janet Yellen went out to eat at a regular restaurant in downtown Beijing and sat in the open in front of regular everyday Chinese folks uh, who are going to the restaurant, didn't have, you know, uh, some highfalutin dinner. She went to a regular old restaurant downtown. It, are there some style points that she's able to get here, uh, Roman? Well, I, I think maybe you might uh, juxtapose that uh, her conduct and, and regularness uh, at, with uh, the CCP officials who maybe aren't seen in public, and maybe that's uh, taken on, her, uh, you know, by their uh, citizens. Uh, but look, she, you know, she is, uh, as Michael said, to, there to deliver a tough, uh, unified message on, on behalf of the government uh, and, and try to also. Uh, remind folks that uh, I think the Biden administration, Trump administration officials prior have said that, you know, the, the U.S. government's uh, uh, beef is not with uh, the people of China, but is with the Chinese Communist Party, who is fundament fundamentally in, in many ways, most ways, diametrically opposed to the United States. Uh, and so I think that message is also one that is important for the Biden administration to convey, is that this is not an anti-China uh, position, but this is really geared at the policies and practices of the Chinese Communist Party. Look, my, uh, Michael, th that is a stark reality, right? I mean, I just came off uh, producing an hour-long documentary for CNBC on Chinese espionage against American companies. It, this is a ruthless, ruthless competition between these two economies globally, uh, and the stakes couldn't be any higher. And so you, you do have the warm and fuzzy stuff, but how does Janet Yellen go there this week and come away with a win, Michael? Maybe she doesn't aim for a win so much as uh, leveling off, going yeah. back to Rowan's earlier point, where we're not really going to be able to take this relationship in a super positive direction. I think we need to prevent it from going in a super negative direction. And you say the stakes couldn't be higher. I, I agree with you, especially if we start talking about the possibility of war over Taiwan, then the stakes really can't be higher. I, I can live with a little bit of a bare knuckles economic competition. Uh, because I think we can do just fine in that competition and the stakes will be about winning and losing individual jobs or profit margins or shares of global investment. But uh, what I really am most concerned about, and maybe it's because I study defense policy, is the possibility of war. And that's where we have to, uh, we're yelling going out and eating in the street reminds both sides that 
we have a lot of economic benefit from this relationship. There's a lot of bad things that happen within the economic relationship, but also a lot of good. And we got to try to preserve the good and avoid the war. So let's go. Let's go there. I don't want to fear monger. Right. And I don't want to speculate too much. But in a war scenario, in, a, in an invasion of Taiwan by the Chinese government, uh, are there American companies that uh, could survive that? Or is that sort of an existential threat uh, to the existence of some American companies? You think of the huge names that have enormous production and enormous markets in China. Uh, those guys would be out of luck on day one, wouldn't they, Roman? Well, look, that is the fundamental uh, un unaddressed question. And, uh, and, and I think companies and managements, investors need to uh, really consider that. And and it should really be, uh, in some ways, a clearly stated U.S. policy in terms of uh, sanctions and export controls and embargoes and, and what we would do uh, if China crossed that red line. Uh, and, and that's clearly perhaps one of the uh, one of the failures in terms of uh, deterrence uh, in, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that 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 line was not clearly stated and that perhaps uh, Vladimir Putin did not believe we had the will to reinforce our, our words and our commitments. Uh, and so uh, Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party should have, uh, yeah. have an explicitly clear understanding of, of what that would be. And also it would help U.S. companies. Uh, right. You know, you've had a, a number of CEOs go to China. Uh, and if they clearly understood what would happen to their operations in China, they might be able to communicate that message directly to the to the party. Roman Schweitzer, Michael O'Hanlon, thank you both for your insights today. It's it is scary stuff. And hopefully there's more rainbows and dinners out in, in our future and less talk of war and saber rattling. Now on to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hey there, Tyler. Eamon, thank you very much. The 24-year-old uh, accused of carrying out a deadly mass shooting inside a Texas Walmart has been sentenced to 90 consecutive life sentences on nearly 50 federal hate crime charges. Authorities say Patrick Crucius targeted Hispanic shoppers in the 2019 shooting spree. He killed 23, hurt dozens more. He could still face the death penalty when state prosecutors take him to trial. Las Vegas police say officials say there will be no charges filed in an incident between the pop star Britney Spears and Victor Wimbayama's security team. Spears claimed on social, social media that the security guard hit her when she tried to introduce herself to the celebrated San Antonio Spurs draft pick, first pick in the draft. Meanwhile, the NBA rookie claimed that Spears grabbed him, this is putting it politely, from behind, prompting the response from his security. And an artificial intelligence conference in Geneva hosted the first ever robot press conference today. The nine robots were recently upgraded uh, with the latest versions of generative AI, and even their inventors said they were surprised by the sophistication of some of the answers those robots delivered today. We're next. Tyler. We're next, Damon. Tyler, thanks. I'm just hoping there weren't robot reporters for that robot <laughs> press conference. We can't have that. Still ahead, a new report shows Tesla continues to dominate the EV market. Has the moat gotten too big for competitors to catch up? Or can someone else still storm the Tesla castle? Phil LeBeau is going to have that story coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Rivian far outperforming its peers today on that bullish call from Wedbush, citing firm demand and an improved, improved supply chain and production environment. But a new report on the state of the EV market shows Tesla is still king. Phil LeBeau is here. He has the details. Phil, I see more and more Rivians out there in the wild, but they do have a long way to go, don't they? 
They do, but they have improved their production, and we'll show you just how much they've improved it in just a little bit. I love this report, Amy, because it's the most up-to-date snapshot of the electric vehicles the people in the United States are buying right now. In the first half of this year, they're still buying Teslas. Oh, yeah, by an overwhelming number of vehicles that are out there. 60% of the EVs that were sold in the first half of this year, according to Motor Intelligence, were Teslas. By the way, most of them are Model Y or Model 3. In fact, over half of the EV sales in the first half of this year were Model 3 or Model Y, about 56%. In the first half, Tesla increased its sales by 29.7%. So you're looking at a company right now that continues to grow. Its gap between them and the next closest is more than 300,000 vehicles. So as you take a look at shares of Tesla, Yes, this has helped the company's stock move higher over the last several weeks, the fact that they've had some strong demand, but it's really about gross auto margins. And we'll find out what they were for the second quarter on July 19th when the company reports after the bell. You mentioned Rivian. What a day for Rivian. Really, what a month for Rivian. This stock has exploded. You talk about Wedbush and the fact that they have raised the price target from 25 to 30 on stronger production. The R1T is now the best-selling electric pickup truck in the United States. Easily, <coughs> easily outselling Ford's F-150 Lightning. And speaking of Ford, as well as General Motors, they both had price target increases today from Morgan Stanley. But both of those companies, Amen, when you look at where they are in their EV production, yeah, there was some downtime at Ford. They had some issues with a battery fire investigation with the F-150 Lightning earlier this year. And GM has increased production. But both of them have been very slow in the ramp-up of EV production. And that is one reason why people look at EVs right now and they say, I see Teslas everywhere. I'm starting to see more Rivians. Where are the GM and the Ford models? We're just not seeing a ton of them right now. You actually see a lot of Hyundais out there. They're number two in terms of market share. Yeah, a lot of those guys way behind. And Tesla not afraid to scoop up market share by cutting prices. Uh, I wonder if, you, if you're going to see more Tesla price cuts in the future. It's sort of a controversial strategy earlier this year. Seems to have paid off, right, right, in terms of that market share that you're just pointing to. But is there a point where you start to cut into profits too much if you cut those prices? We'll find out on July 19th. Look, the, the, the gross auto margins are expected to come down. They were 19.5% in the first quarter. Most are saying they're going to come down a percent or two in the second quarter. At least that's the conjecture that's out there among analysts. And that's because of the price cuts. But the biggest impact with those price cuts, Eamon, it's China. It's yeah. brutally competitive in China right now in terms of pricing. That's the biggest impact for Tesla. And they just Not put as a much floor. here in the United States, but though we are seeing some. And they just put a floor Say on prices again? in China, right? The, the government teamed up with the Chinese automakers well, and said no more price cuts. Supposedly. So, supposedly. Supposedly. You know how okay. this works, Eamon. There's supposed to be a floor there. And then we hear there, there's reports a day later that some of the companies are juicing the market a little bit. We'll see. I, I'm always a little bit skeptical of these agreements. One man's floor is another man's ceiling. Phil Lebeau, thank you. And coming up... Uh, Pandemic migration patterns could produce a permanent shift in the housing market. Diana Olick's going to join us to explain what that's all about. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. A shift in the housing market is underway as mortgage rates continue to soar. The 30-year rate sitting at the highest level since November. Diana Olick is here and she has a look now at how migration trends have changed since the pandemic began and their impact on home prices. Hey there, Diana. 
Hey, Eamon, yeah, moving patterns are actually holding, but home prices are weakening in some of the still hottest migration markets, in part because of higher mortgage rates, but also due to the demographic makeup of those moving in. This is according to a new study from Bank of America. Take a look at the top five markets for population growth in the first two years of the pandemic. Tampa, Orlando, Austin, Phoenix, and Las Vegas. These markets all saw home price gains between 30 and 50 percent, according to CoreLogic. They are all still seeing population growth, albeit about a third as much. But prices in these markets are now reacting differently. Last year, even as mortgage rates doubled, home prices remained strong in Tampa and Orlando. But Austin, which still has positive population growth, saw prices fall. Vegas and Phoenix saw much smaller price gains. Why? Well, demographics and home building. Austin's inflow is largely younger Americans, many of whom are either renting or buying less expensive homes. Compare that to Tampa and Orlando, where wealthier baby boomers are heading, boosting prices. There was also heavier home building in Phoenix and Austin, leading to more supply, which always tempers prices. As for cities with the big pandemic outflows, well, New York, Boston, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle. In the first two years of the pandemic, pandemic prices there gained despite the outflows, likely because of low supply. And last year, those markets still lost population, but prices held positive in New York and Boston, but they went negative in the other three. That's because pre-pandemic, prices in the West had overheated so much that they just had harder to fall. There's also less supply in those Western cities. Amen. Diana, thanks. Now, for more on the health of housing, our next guest is giving us an exclusive preview of their housing report coming out Monday, and it shows affordability isn't improving. So for more on that report, let's bring in Andy Walden of Black Knight. Andy, what did you guys find in that report? Yeah, and I think this adds another wrinkle to what Diana is talking about, because if once we look at May data, right, our latest home price in, index, what you see is some really strong firming, and I would venture to say heating out there in the housing market almost universally. So those markets that Diana was talking about, your West Coast markets that had seen, been seeing prices fall, they're now firming up as we move into the summer months on a lack of inventory. Diana, you were talking about this earlier, this 7% mortgage rates. I wonder who the buyers are then in all these different markets who are able to take on that kind of debt. Well, it just means whoever has that kind of money to put down or if you're not using a mortgage at all, which we're seeing a actual rising share of home buyers are going all cash because they want to be competitive. But look, you know, yesterday we had the CEO of Compass on and he said seven was the new normal and that was fine. I got to say, I don't really buy that. I think when it comes to affordability with higher home <coughs> prices and mortgage rates now over 7%, there simply is a line where some people either can't afford that monthly payment or they're not going to qualify at that rate. Andy, what do you make of what Diana was reporting earlier, this idea of demographics and migration patterns post-pandemic really shaping the housing market for years to come? Yeah, I don't know about years to come, but absolutely it has the last couple of years, right? And you saw this big inflow into those markets. You saw, as Diana talked about, they, they overperformed the market significantly with this outside money coming in. And now you're seeing those markets more reliant on local market income. And as Diana talked about, if you look at rates getting up to 7% yesterday, according to our Optimal Blue data, Home affordability just hit its lowest level in 37 years. We're past where we were in October of last year. So to your point of, of demand out there and who's buying, I think you're going to continue to see a lot of downward pressure on demand. It's just this lack of inventory that continues to, to hold prices where they're at. And what's going to convince people to actually sell and produce more inventory? Yeah, I mean, that that is the key question, right? And, and sellers have shown no inkling of returning back to the market. Those existing homeowners that are the lifeblood that drive 85, 90% of all listings continue to back away and back away and back away this summer. And even if 
when we saw rates get down to 6% earlier this year, you did not see any semblance of them returning. Now, the one place that we've seen some bright spots is the new build. We saw an overperformance in um, in May. We still have a lot of units under construction. So that's the only spot where you can see some inventory coming to market. And that's going to be a big player as we move forward. But the distressed inventory, foreclosure levels, delinquencies at, at near record lows, uh, existing sellers unwilling to sell. So it's going to have to be those no, new builds. I just don't think yeah. there's enough volume there to, to return us to normal. Andy, we just have a couple of seconds left in the show, but I do, do want to get your thought on what could break that logjam. Is it just build, build, build? I mean, I think that's part of it. I think you're going to see the more pressure put on the Fed to keep rates high for long. And I think you're seeing that the market kind of realized that over the last couple of days with bond yields and 30 year rates holding high. I think it's going to be continued Fed pressure and absolutely building is going to be a Great. component of it. I just don't think that's going to get us all the way there. Andy Walden and, Di and Diane Olick, thank you for your insights. That does it for The Exchange today. Power Lunch starts after this quick break. Don't go. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.